Thank you. That's very kind. I want to thank Pastor Ryan and the other pastors and the leaders here. Special shout out to Grace. What an amazing helper she has been this time. Thank you. And it's a really a privilege to be with you today to bring God's word. I think God has something special for you today. Why? Because God is special and his word is special. So every time we open up his word, it's a special opportunity to hear from the Lord. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn there. I'm so glad you're here and you got the notice that it is Daylight Savings. Um, we'll see who walks in in about 30 minutes. Hopefully this, I'll be done by then, hopefully, but uh, we'll see. Um, but a shout out to all of you who are here in person, as well as those online and to the Hayward congregation. I want to shout out to you as well. Glad we're together like this as God's family uh, to hear from our Father in heaven. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7 is God's word for us this morning. And as was the custom in Israel, let's stand together to hear from the Lord himself as he speaks to you. Listen carefully, people of God, for this is the word of the Lord. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Thus far the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock, And our Redeemer, speak to us now by the power of your spirit, for we ask it in the matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. It's funny how certain specific lines of a word conjures up certain memories. Perhaps it's that love ballad that you sang in the 80s to your girlfriend, at least I did. And so you hear, you hear it on the radio and like, oh, I remember those days, the summer of 69, whatever it was. <laughs> but for me, this song, Rock of Ages Cleft for Me, Let Me Hide Myself in Thee, reminds me of a, a very special time in my life when I would sit by my grandmother's hospital bed. As she lay dying from cancer, I would visit her, we would take shifts at the hospital to stay with her, spend time with her, and I would always ask, Grandma, Is there anything I can do for you? And she would say, sing. Sing to me. 
And so I'd bring out my Korean English hymnal because she only sang in Korean. And in my kind of broken, bad Korean, I would sing with her and she would try to sing along with me. And she, this was one of her favorite hymns. So every time I sing these words, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. It brings up these wonderful memories of God's protection, power, provision, not only when I'm alive, but also perhaps for my grandmother when she's dying and about to meet Jesus. I remember how we found strength and assurance from God the rock during this time when everything in life seemed anything but stable. The hymn, however, confused me. The first line of this hymn alludes back to images you may remember from Exodus 33. Do you remember that scene? The great leader of Israel, Moses, has gathered his people, delivering them hopefully from the clutches of Pharaoh, Egypt, trying to deliver them to the promised land. And along the way, during these wilderness wanderings, these difficult wanderings filled with trials, tribulations, and temptations, Moses goes up on Sinai where he wants to meet the Lord. And there he says, Lord, show me your glory. I need to be encouraged. I need to be strengthened. And God says, you you can't see my glory. It's too much for you. I'm too holy. You're too unholy. But this I will do for you. See this cleft of the rock? I'm going to place you inside this cleft. I'm going to turn you around. I'm going to place my hand over it, and then I'm going to go by you. You'll get a sense of my glory. So God does this, right? Remember, God passes by Moses, and Moses was like, (sighs) right? Because he experiences, in Hebrew, it's called the Shekinah glory. It's a Hebrew word that you can learn today, right? Shekinah glory. This amazing, powerful, holy presence of God. And so Moses goes back down to the people of Israel, encouraged strengthened as he experiences again the power, provision, and protection of God. Wow. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. But how does the rest of the hymn go? Do you remember? The second line of the hymn goes, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be for sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. How do we go from the cleft of the rock to the cross? How do we go from this rock to Calvary, where Jesus is hanging there, blood coming out of his side? Is the hymn writer here, Augustus Toplady, seeing something in Exodus 33 that I just can't see? How does he make this jump? And then I realized, could it be that Toplady is actually blending Images from two rocks, from two stories, not only from Exodus 33, but also from our passage this morning, Exodus 17. Because here in Exodus 17, you're going to come face to face with the rock of ages. And this story is not just for Israel going through their wilderness wanderings, being tempted and tried, wanting so desperately for encouragement, comfort, and strength in the midst of the trials of life. This story is for you, for me, who in the midst of our wilderness wandering sometimes, and let's be honest, this life has felt like a wilderness, hasn't it, in at least the last couple years, from a global pandemic to political polarization, 
And I can imagine just as I look across this room, how many of you, even now, even watching online, might be struggling with life, wondering and crying out to the Lord, Lord, are you among us or not? We'll see the Israelites face that. And God had an answer for them. And God has an answer for you this morning. And it's a message that's wonderful. It's a message of grace. Here we come face to face with the rock of ages. What's interesting is this particular story in the Old Testament here in Exodus 17, a psalmist, a singer, a poet in Psalm 95 picks up on this image. Do you remember these words from Psalm 95? From verse six and following it says, oh come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. And we usually just stop there because it's so pretty and beautiful and pastoral, right? You know how the rest of that psalm goes? Right after it says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massah in the wilderness. He's talking about this story. Don't be like them, he says. He's warning us. For 40 years, I loathed that generation, God says. Those are strong words. They are a people who go astray in their hearts and have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And that's exactly what happened, wasn't it, for these Israelites? Out of their disobedience, God had to punish them in his justice. So the psalmist here in Psalm 95 describes this really important event in the history of the Israelites. And he actually warns us, I believe today, not to follow in the same hard-heartedness of their forefathers, our forefathers, foremothers, who grumbled and mumbled their way through the wilderness wanderings. But if you're like me, that's hard. Yeah, that's true, it's good, but how can we be encouraged, inspired, strengthened to not be like them, to keep trusting, to keep resting, to keep relying, to keep walking with hope, with faith, Ultimately, it's only found in the rock of ages. So what I'd like to do is unfold this drama here in Exodus 17 and, and actually share that this is no ordinary drama. This is actually a legal drama. What I'd like to submit to you is that what's happening here is much more severe and serious than the Israelites, oh, there they go again, complaining what again, once again. It's like our kids when we go on vacation. You're li literally five minutes after you leave, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty, I have to go to the bathroom, whatever it may be. Oh, those Israelites. And yet what I think the story is trying to teach us is we're not very different at the end of the day, but there's hope. There's good news, friends, in the rock of ages. And as this legal drama unfolds here in this, can I call it desert courtroom of Massa and Meribah, three legal elements will unfold. A charge will be presented a verdict will be rendered, and a sentence will be executed, okay? Don't believe me? Hang on. Fasten your seatbelts, here we go. So a charge, verdict, and sentencing. So first, a charge, how can I say this? Well, interestingly, in verse two, I think verse two actually sets the scene for us in this desert courtroom. It says, therefore the people quarreled, there's a special word there, it's, it's used again a couple of times in this short seven verses. So the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. So Moses said to them again this word, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? 
And so you have to picture it in your minds, at least in my mind, in this legal drama. It goes back to when I was young. And, and remember People's Court, Judge Wapner? Yeah. Da-dun-dun. <laughs> dun da dun dun Plaintiff, right? Maybe only the older people here are laughing. <laughs> the young people are like, I have no idea what that old man's talking about. Well, it's like those Judge Judy, those kinds of story, you know, those television shows. The plaintiffs actually walk in, and this is the people of Israel, and they bring a charge against them. Plaintiffs, Israel, the nation of Israel, right? Then, da, 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 then the doors swing open, and then Moses walks in as the covenant lawyer representing God, defendant, Moses, representing the God of the universe, right? <laughs> So that's what you have to imagine. So they walk in, they, 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 they take their stand, and they begin their arguments. The people of Israel said, give us water to drink. What's interesting is that this word quarrel that you find in this passage is not your run-of-the-mill Hebrew word for arguing over the remote control. It's actually a specific word used elsewhere in the Bible, specifically in the, in the prophets, to bring a lawsuit against so the better translation is, why do you bring a lawsuit against God? Why are you charging the Lord? Why are you testing him in this legal way? That changes the whole dynamics, doesn't it? It's used elsewhere in scripture in legal context to bring a suit against. In fact, it's when, whenever Israel broke their promises, broke the covenant promises between them and God, God would actually say, I'm bringing a suit against you. That's what's actually here. But, so what exactly is the charge? Who exactly is being charged? Let's see. The charge is brought against Moses and God himself. Well, why do you contend with me? Why do you test the Lord? You see, God, through Moses, is being accused of abandoning Israel to die in the desert. So you have to picture it in your minds. Here they are in the hot and arid Sinai Peninsula. Not in the wet, rainy Fremont, California. The hot, arid Sinai Peninsula, scorching sun has been baking relentlessly, day after day, week after week, month after month, penetrating just the thin cloths that they have wrapped around their heads. Hot winds have been blowing sand into the dry cracks of their faces, searing every portion of their skin. I'm already getting thirsty just thinking about it. And in this dry land, this parched land, we call Sinai. Weary bodies that have been traveling for weeks, for months, it easily becomes dehydrated, right? That makes sense. And so they cry out for water, give us water to drink. But behind this plea is an actual charge. They actually bring an accusation with them. This is no ordinary complaint. What exactly is the charge? In legal language, it's actually called breach of contract or failure to uphold a promise. Remember this promise that was given to their great-great-grandfather Abraham. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will multiply you as the sands of the seashore. And the Israelites like, yeah, God, I see a lot of sand here. But I'm about to die. My children are about to die. My livestock are about to die. You know what this is? What's happening? God, do you not see me, my situation, my family, my finances? My whole life is a wreck. Are you among us or not? Can I keep trusting you? Clearly no. I'm done. I can't trust you anymore. I want out of this relationship. God, I want a divorce. That's actually what's happening. That's how 
severe and serious this is. Did you notice also in verse four, Moses is afraid of stoning. That's not, normal, that's not what you normally do when you're, afraid, you're mad at your leader. Don't worry, Ryan, they won't stone you. This is a specific punishment in the Old Testament for treason or breaking of a particular lifeblood contract, a covenant promise. And so instead of leaving the future up to chance, they take matters into your own mind, their own hands, they cry out, you've broken your promise for the last time. I'm not sure if I can trust you anymore. We're taking you to court. We want out of this relationship. We want to control our own future. I don't need you anymore. Now, lest we become too harsh on the Israelites, let's just stop and pause. If we're honest with ourselves, I'm sure, I'm, I can guarantee that you've been in those situations, what I call the dark hours of the night, you can't sleep, your heart is hollow, your mind is empty, because you can't make sense why this is happening to you right now, whatever it may be, to you, to your family, to your finances, those dark hours of the night when you cry out to God, God, I want to believe, I want to trust, I want to keep following you, but God, it's hard. I don't think I can do this anymore. The Israelites cry out, are you among us or not? These are real and honest feelings that I'm sure you face too. The charge has been recorded, the arguments have been given. What's next? The verdict. Notice in verse five, Moses is told by the Lord, walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders in Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Again, all these interesting details that you need to pay attention to. Two things at least we wanna pay attention to here. Notice first of all, what God says, walk on, when you walk on ahead of the people, okay, let's go to trial. Now let's go to the verdict. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Do you notice that? Their presence is necessary for true justice to occur. It's just not Moses willingly making a decision on behalf of God. It's like, you want to you go to court? Then let's make sure we do this right. Gather the elders to ensure that true justice occur, occurs. That's mentioned several times in this passage. So they are absolutely necessary for the setting. That's number one. Secondly, did you notice... God says, take in your hand the staff. What is that all about? And then he says, claws, the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Whenever these little details are there in Hebrew stories or Hebrew narratives like this in the Old Testament, you have to pay attention. What's happening here? Do you remember the last time this staff was used? In fact, it reminds you in the text when it was used to strike the Nile River turning into blood. So you have to go back in time when Moses is still in Egypt, and Moses, on behalf of God, goes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go, right? <laughs> and Pharaoh says, no, no. And then all come these plagues, right? These are judgments against Pharaoh's disobedience and sin against the Lord. So the plagues start to come. And one of the judgments against Pharaoh and the Egyptians was what? Turning the lifeblood of Egypt, the Nile River, into death blood. And when Moses struck the Nile River, turning it into blood, it was a strike of judgment. You're already starting to rush ahead of me, right? Hang on. It's a strike of judgment against Pharaoh. 
And now God says, that staff, remember that staff you used for judgment when you rendered a verdict, use that staff. So now at this point, the people of Israel are going, ho, ho, ho. Now we're finally getting down to business. Someone's going to get it. Everybody knows that the verdict is guilty, guilty as charged. Why? There go the elders. Oh, somebody's going to get it. And there goes Moses, and he's carrying that staff. How is he going to use that staff now? The air was probably thick with anticipation. But who exactly is the guilty party at this point? Is it Moses? They grumbled against Moses. Is it God? They put the Lord to the test. But think about it. Has God been unfaithful? The Israelites had just recently witnessed, if you just go back a couple chapters, one of the most incredible events in their history, a story that they would tell their children and their children's children, even to this very day, one of the most incredible events in the history of Israel, as they were fleeing from Pharaoh and his soldiers, God says, raise your hands, Moses. And then the Red Sea opens. Remember this story? The Red Sea opens and all close to two million Israelites walk through the Red Sea untouched. And as the last Israelite stepped up on the opposite shore, Moses brought down his hands. And with the mighty wave, the Lord engulfed Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And there they stood, hearing the cries of the soldiers, seeing the dead wash up on the shore, tasting the victory of the Lord. Tangibly, God had demonstrated his power, provision, and protection. Are you among us or not? (laughs) Take a look. But wait, there's more. This is like an infomercial. But wait, there's more. This is not the first time they were thirsty. Do you remember? They've been thirsty before. They come upon water. The water's bitter to drink. So Moses throws in a log. Do you remember that? And the water becomes sweet, and they drink. They go, yay, God, God's the best. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. No matter what, God, I'm yours. But wait, there's more. (laughs) They were hungry before, remember? They're in the wilderness for 40 years. Where are they going to get food? God knows. You think God doesn't know? And God miraculously opens up the sky, and out comes quail and manna, double-fold before the Sabbath, so they don't have to work on the Sabbath. God thinks of everything. That's how detailed he is. Time and time again, God demonstrates his love, power, provision for them. And yet, at the first sign of trouble, what do they do? They sow their seeds of doubt to just reap rebellion and rejection. Jeremiah was right, wasn't he? When he says, our hearts are so fickle, who can know this deceitful heart? Who at the first sign of trouble, they turn their back. That's how weak Israel is. That's how faithless Israel is. But friends, unfortunately, that's how weak and faithless we are. So this is a warning to us too. And that's why the psalmist says that don't follow in the same hard-heartedness, friends. It's a real temptation that we all face. And here, at this point in the story, the irony of the courtroom drama emerges, right? The irony of the story Israel had just been shown God's love and care in the provision of manna for their hunger, yet they did not trust him to give water for their thirst. And the Israelites failed to see that actually it was they that were on trial. They were on trial in this desert courtroom. So they are not the plaintiffs. 
they are actually the defendants. They are the ones who first turned their back on the relationship. At the first sign of trouble, turned their back, betrayed the relationship. So the charge has been given, treason, the verdict, guilty. What's next? The sentencing, right? But remember the sentence for treason is what? Death. Death by stoning. But what is God going to do? This is, this is God's people. What about the promise that the Messiah would come from them? What about the promise, promise that he, they're going to go to the promised land? Does God have another people in mind? Hmm, let's look around. Those Canaanites look like a strong bunch. I bet they'll follow me. Yeah, but there's that whole baby killing thing that doesn't really quite work out. Yeah. Eh, maybe not the Canaanites. What, is, what to do? And here at the rock of Masa and Meribah is the triumph of God's grace. Moses is commanded by the Lord to raise the rod of judgment in verse six. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock. Water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So God tells his servant to render the verdict and execute the sentencing. Raise the staff, strike Someone's going to get it. But two seemingly insignificant words appear that make all the difference in not only understanding this passage, but ultimately encouraging you, inspiring you, motivating you to keep walking when it's hard, to keep trusting, to keep resting in God, our faithful God. Two words. Did you notice God says, I will stand before you, that preposition, and I will stand on the rock, okay? Pay attention, before and on. Seemingly insignificant, two prepositions, but they make all the difference. First, God declares that he will stand before Moses. This is, frankly, an astonishing, shocking statement. Throughout scripture, especially in legal situations, it is actually the guilty defendant that must stand before the judge. The guilty criminal is always the one who stands before the righteous judge. But in this amazing trial, God says, he himself, I will stand before. He will stand before them, taking the place of the accused, going before them as the criminal, waiting in the judgment block. Secondly, what does it mean that God will stand on the rock? And again, here, this Hebrew word can be translated. It's a simple preposition before, beside, or on. I believe in this context, on makes all the sense in the world. Why? Because he is symbolically identifying himself with that rock. For this moment, I will stand on the rock. I will become that rock. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. Throughout Scripture, God has called our rock a sure foundation. But here, the connotation is a little bit different, isn't it? Yes, he is a sure foundation, but ultimately why? He's our foundation because he takes our place. He becomes the substitute and the sacrifice for the people who are guilty and deserve their punishment. God says, no. I will go before. I will stand on. Now, Moses, strike the rock. It doesn't record for us what Moses was thinking. No, Lord, not you. Strike the rock, Moses. 
in the midst of their doubt, despair, and defiance, Israel would no longer trust that God was in control of their lives. The first sign of trouble, the Israelites turned their back on God. But in this amazing trial, friends, God is declaring to you that he will stand before you and in your place take the judgment you deserve. He, though entirely innocent, will sacrifice himself and be their substitute for God's promises to continue. He himself will receive the charge, the verdict, and the sentencing. And so Moses lifts the rod of judgment and he strikes the rock on which he stands. What is the result, friends? As a result of striking the rock, water flows out, right? But not just any old water, but life-sustaining water. Water that not only satisfies the mouth, but enlivens the soul. Friends, the rock here is not any old rock, but the rock of ages. Cleft for you. And do you remember when Jesus went to the cross and that soldier thrust his spear into his side? What poured out of his side? Blood and water. Coincidence? Now Jesus sits on his throne, even now, as the great Lamb of God, whose sins washes away, whose blood washes away the sins of the world. And what flows from this great throne of life? Water. Jesus, on the great feast in John 7, stood up, and he called out to his children and said, those of you who thirst, who go through parched, desert-like experiences, whose wilderness life sometimes just is really hard, come to me. Come to me and drink, for you will thirst no more. Do you remember when Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 talked about the Israelites? He remembered this story, not just the psalmist in Psalm 95, but even in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul said, do you remember the Israelites? Your brothers, your sisters, your fathers and mothers before you. That they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And he said, that rock was Christ. You see, friends, this is Jesus. This is the Jesus who came from heaven to earth to live the life that you could not live. He lived sinlessly for you, and yet he died a sinner's death for you and for me so that we never have to. This is Jesus, the one who now raises to glory and gives you that resurrection hope and resurrection power. And now if you trust in Christ, his resurrection power flows through your veins. And even though life is hard, and I know it is, you can keep trusting. You can keep resting. You can keep walking. So fellow pilgrim, keep walking. Why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God. God who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all on the cross. Will he not freely give you all things? Friends, this is Jesus. This is our God. A God who loved us so much he did not spare his own son, but went before us, went on the rock so that we will never thirst again. Is he among us? Oh, friend. He is not only among us, he has become like us. Taking on flesh, enduring the temptations, the trials and tribulations. And yet he was victorious over sin, 
victorious over death. And so he says to you today, trust me, follow me, and drink, for you will thirst no more. Friends, in a world that threatens to turn our eyes away from the rock, who created us, redeemed us, let us throw off everything that hinders and turn our eyes to Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these amazing words, these words of life that come from what seems like a simple story and yet no story is simple because it ultimately profoundly tells us about Jesus. This is Jesus, our substitute and our sacrifice, who took the charge, the verdict, and the sentencing so that we can have life and life eternal. So in this life of wilderness wandering, we pray that we would remember that there's no guilt in life. There's no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Lord, we know Jesus commands our destiny. So help us to truly believe that no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Father, here, here and now, in the power of Christ, I'll stand. So Father, would you do this by the power of your spirit, the spirit of Christ, for we ask it in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.